You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, hello, everybody. Hello. Oh, wait, were you talking to us or the audience? Uh, both. Both, really. Well, then, hello. Hello. Hi. Hey, good to see you guys again. Been so I'm long. starting things off this week with a mysterious tale. I'm excited. Ooh. Yeah. So I'm going to take you. Yes. I'm going to take you back to 2002. And right. Lydia Fairchild was having a tough year. Okay. Why she had two young name... children. The name is like well, ringing some sort of bell. That, that's uh, having two young children can be tough. Yes. Yeah. A third on the way. Oh. Yeah, and unfortunately, she was in the process of separating from her partner, Jamie, who's the kid's father. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So to this help... all sounds challenging. Yeah. To help support yeah. her and her kids through this transition, she applied for benefits from the state of Washington, where she lived. Oh. Okay. And as part of this okay. process, both Lydia and Jamie, the parents, had to take a DNA test to prove that they, the kids were actually theirs. So okay. uh -huh. Jamie was shown as the father of both children, but to Lydia's shock, the DNA test showed that she was not the no. children's mother. We do a, I'm pretty sure she would know. <laughs> but I think she, uh, she had carried and given birth to both of them. Uh -huh. And right. Jamie also asserted that he had been present in the delivery room and seen his children born. It seems like um, so I, I think I know where this that, is going, uh, but I, I'm, I'm here for it. I, yeah. I, I also think I know, but it's still that that isn't something that you can't fake that very easily. <laughs> well, it gets worse. <laughs> okay. Um, so they did the DNA test again with a cheek swab three times to uh -huh. see if there was some lab error to blame, but the results came right. back the same each time. So not you, only as, as Maury Povich would say. You are not the mother. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Although you, I never heard him say that. I don't know. Yeah, there's a so, reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is strange. I'm, I'm, I would agree. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So not only did the state not want to give her benefits, they <gasps> now decided that they were going to prosecute her for attempted fraud. <gasps> yes. That... Mm -hmm. And she tried to find... Person. Yeah. She tried to find a lawyer to represent her. But with the DNA evidence, uh, which was considered incontrovertible, no one mm -hmm. would touch the case. So she oh. had to represent herself. Oh. And, you know, she showed photos of her pregnancies and with her children throughout their lives. But the judge was just not buying it. And prosecutors were now also calling for her children to be placed in foster care since she apparently wasn't their mother and was using oh them to, to, to do fraud against the state. Mm -hmm. So things oh. were coming to a head. Yeah. She's really and having the worst year. Really? Yeah. It, it, real. it, I, I thought the year was bad. It was like, oh, you're taking care of all these kids. Yeah, it went downhill. Mm-hmm. You could say. So, and now she was due to give birth. Um, she was actually scheduled for an induction. And she asked right. for a delay of the proceedings until after the birth. Oh, man. 
Of the child, third child that was also not hers, I assume. Right. So a judge ordered a court <laughs> officer to be present in the delivery room and observe. Good, good. They took yeah. blood samples for DNA from both Lydia and the newborn right after birth. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, the child was also not hers according to the DNA. Ta-da! So it's a little hard to know. I guess at this point, the judge thought that um, Lydia was maybe perpetrating some kind of surrogacy scam. Right, yeah. Because obviously she gave birth to at least the third child, right? (laughs) Right. Pretty sure she gave birth to all three of them. That's a pretty pretty complicated scam. What's the upside on that? I'm not the most impressed with this uh, judge, to be honest. (laughs) Oh no! But uh, I can say, I, I, but I, but I get it. It's like, look, this—the DNA doesn't lie. That's what yeah. all the courts are always told. The and DNA doesn't lie. It is unusual. Although in 2002, like DNA was still—it's not brand new, but it's still kind of new in science. Like it's, it's new enough that it's not necessarily the most infallible thing. At least in 2002, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. kind of. I guess. Um, I mean, you think back to to like the OJ case in 95 and, you know, they had trouble explaining to the jury exactly what DNA evidence was and why it was reliable. So this is only seven years after that. Exactly. So I, th- I think your point stands, Rachel. Um, anyway, on the basis of this new DNA evidence or mismatch with her child she had just given birth to, she was able to hire a lawyer finally, Alan Tyndall. Yay. Right. And in, yeah, and in doing research for this case, Alan came across a recent article from the New England Journal of Medicine about a woman, Karen Keegan, who had needed a kidney transplant. And in testing her family members for a match, doctors discovered that two of her three sons appeared not to be her children. Although she had given birth to them. so weird. (laughs) So weird. So you might be asking, what the heck is going on here? I think both Kirk and Rachel probably know, but it turns out guess, that yeah. Lydia and Karen have a strange condition. They are genetic chimeras. Yes, chimeras. Yes. Chimerism. This yes, is so cool. chimerism. So if that word sounds familiar, you may know it from Greek myth. The chimera was a mythical beast. Uh, so it was a lion with a goat's head coming out of its back and a snake for a tail. And so basically a mishmash of different animal parts and a genetic chimera is a bit similar. It's a single organism that genetically contains the DNA of two or more individuals. Right. So, pretty weird. Very. There are, yeah. yeah, there are a number of ways this can happen. In the case of these two women, basically it starts out with two fertilized eggs in the womb, uh, basically fraternal twins. But at a very early stage, the two embryos merge and one child is born, uh, apparently normal, that has cells from both embryos. Um, oh. And this is called tetragametic chimerism. So gametes are the sex cells, so tetra is four, so four gametes. Mm-hmm. Um, these type of chimeras have actually been known about for a long time, but it was in cases where there was some obvious giveaway, like different patches of skin colors on different parts of the body, two different eye colors, sometimes even yeah, mixed sex characteristics. Or sometimes okay. people even have two different blood types at the same time. I would not like that. <laughs> <laughs> but for the case of Lydia and Karen, there, was, there were none of these outward signs or easily detectable signs of their chimerism. Okay. And Lydia's really horrible year was finally resolved when they took DNA samples from numerous parts of her body. And finally, they found a match with the swab taken from her cervix. 
And they also tested her mom and found that she DNA matched as a grandmother of all three children. Okay. That's I'm so glad you said that, because that was the thing from the very start. I'm going, and maybe this has to do with the state of DNA testing back mm -hmm. in uh, 2002, where they're like, oh, this person's not a match. But wouldn't they be able to say, oh, this appears to be at least a close match. Like, this is your... Your sister or something. Like, it looks like yeah. your sister's child. Yeah. I, maybe that's, again, just because of how far DNA testing has come. Like, I've had my DNA tested, and I'll get matches where someone says, oh, this person appears to be your third cousin or your second cousin. Or, you know, so it's like they must be testing it on a much deeper level now than they did back then to yeah. say, well, it's just not a match, you know. Yeah. I, I think at that I think point you're in right. time, yeah, it was definitely not as detailed and... Um, cataloged as it is now but they would be able to tell like at least grandmothers because a lot of dna like transfers from the mother cells from like we get our mitochondrial dna from our from our right. mother well it yeah. depends if you're testing the mitochondrial dna or the right yeah basically DNA. nowadays it's easy to test a much bigger oh, yeah. part of the dna but back then i think they were just testing certain like specific marker areas Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, luckily, Lydia was able to keep her children, and I assume they gave and her did, she get, did Did she get the benefits I, she applied for? I assume That's so. That's what I, I want to know. See that part. <laughs> I'd be like, now show me the money because nope. <laughs> I've wasted so much more that I didn't have on this. Now, personally, this is just me being a little bit vindictive. I would want the judge who was skeptical and pretty much like looking to get the kids taken away and everything. The first, I'm assuming there was a second judge later. I would want him to pay at least a little bit just for being mm -hmm. kind of dumb. That, that You're correct. That is vindictive. Yeah. Thank you. Also not the way our justice system works. <laughs> not I <at> know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but there are some other ways to be a chimera too. Ooh. In one way or one way we probably all are chimeras because there's actually exchange of cells between a mother and a fetus in utero. So the baby ends up with some of the cells of the mother and the mother ends up with some of the cells of the baby. This is called microchimerism. And they've, they've tested women and found that um, they can find fetal cells, you know, decades after right, pregnancies. Right. And sometimes even cells from an earlier sibling can then get transferred to the new baby which is pretty weird. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how much evidence they have of that, but at least it can happen in theory. Uh, right. And there are also artificial chimeras. Uh, in humans, that would be through organ or bone marrow transplantation. That makes sense, yeah. Which is sort of like, oh, well, yeah, of oh, course. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's something we think of as being, like, chimeric. Right. And a, you could say a blood transfusion... Yes, but that's only very temporary because blood cells don't live very long in the body. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are also uh, animals that have been created in the lab as chimeras, either manipulating the embryos of those animals or through now gene editing they can do with um, CRISPR and stuff like that. Also, many foods that you eat come from plants that are chimeras uh, because uh, most fruits are grown on trees or vines that are grafted to the rootstock of another plant, like apples and grapes. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually in nature, chimeras occur a lot more frequently in some species than others. Apparently in marmosets, 
95% of fraternal twins share blood in the womb and exchange cells, making them chimeras. And most marmoset pregnancies are of fraternal twins. So that's like most marmosets there, which is pretty strange. That's that's weird. (laughs) And the truth is that no one really knows what percentage of the human population are tetrachomedic chimeras. Uh, And this has some... Cool to find out. Yeah, pretty weird implications for criminal and family law, if you think about it even a little bit. So DNA evidence is really not the 100% slam dunk it was thought to be back in 2002. Well, one of the episodes I had mentioned early on in the uh, in the series also mentioned chimeras uh, in when we talked about uh, mitochondria, which Rachel just mentioned. Oh yeah, and how in one sense humans are a chimera. Well, all all uh, not quite all life, but all life that has um, uh, mitochondria. Mitochondria. All eukaryotic yeah, life. Are, all eukaryotic life. Thank you. Right. Are basically uh, a chimera, chimera, which is very cool. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it back to that. I'd forgotten that little point that you're going full circle. I'm just going to think about that more now. Rethink everything. Yeah. (laughs) That's why we're here. And that's what I have for you today. Well, thank you. you. When we come back. Yeah, you're welcome. When we come back from the break, it's going to be Kirk. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature see you soon the year is 1962 and researcher jack oliver is working at the lamont doherty geological observatory and he was analyzing extremely sensitive seismometers and he noticed something strange about every 26 to 28 seconds there was a little teeny tiny blip like a little barely discernible squiggle hmm. on the paper, right? Just, just background noise. And whatever causing it, uh, whatever was causing it was like extremely low frequency and and weak. Now, I, I guess that's not quite the right word. Now, when I say weak, I mean that in the sense that these were not earthquakes that like mm-hmm. people could feel. So they were weak in that sense. Mm-hmm. But they're also strong enough that they could be detected around the world on multiple different seismometers. So okay. we're not talking about someone like in the next room tapping their song, tapping their foot <laughs> to a song or something, right? Okay. Like, so... I very much is... like to tap my song, Kirk. That's my <sighs> favorite thing to do. I know. Well, we can we can go into that in a bonus episode, I guess. Um, so it's not somebody tapping their foot to a song. Uh, this is something that was uh, weak in the sense compared to earthquakes, but strong enough to be heard around the world. Understand? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, you know, being a curious scientist, he tried to figure out what the source of this this pulsing was. And uh, he was pretty sure, after doing a little, little you know, investigations, that uh, the source was somewhere in the southern or equatorial Atlantic Ocean. Okay. Which is, yeah, okay, that's a pretty big area. Yeah, there's um, not a lot there. No, there's not. And he also figured out that it was stronger 
in what was the Northern Hemisphere's summer. Okay. Or Southern Hemisphere's winter, right? Okay. So, uh, but here's the thing. It was 1962. There wasn't really anything more he could figure out. Uh, so he, you know, published what he could figure out and moved on. He actually went on to study other interesting, uh, more testable things and actually added to our understanding of one of Rachel's favorite topics, plate tectonics. Yes. Yay. Plate All right. tectonics. Well, <laughs> we're going to fast forward to uh, 1980 now. And uh, researcher Gary Holcomb, who was a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, he added a little bit to our mystery when he realized that this 26 and 28 second pulses uh, were not only stronger uh, when it was summer in the northern hemisphere, mm-hmm. but uh, they were also the pulses were also stronger during storms in the Atlantic Ocean. Hmm. So. Hmm. Huh. Weird. Not what you would expect to find necessarily a right. causal link there. But again, there wasn't much else to go on for him either. And so he published a little paper on that and then moved on to far more important things. And everyone pretty much forgot about these pulses or kind of stopped paying attention to them. Right. Now, it, it was inadvertently discovered again in 2005 by <laughs> then graduate student Greg Benson at the University of Colorado and he was, you know, looking at his, you know, data, and he's like, oh, "This is weird." And he, he kind of showed his his advisor and other small group of researchers. And they're like, "Well, this is this is really strange. These little pulses that we can just kind of barely detect." And um, so they kind of did a little, you know, reading and whatnot, a little lit- literature search, search, and they dug up Oliver and Holcomb's work as well. And they're like, "Oh, cool. So we're not <laughs> we're not the first ones to figure this out." And they wanted to add. A little bit uh, to this mystery as well and so with the much more modern equipment and much more sensitive equipment they had in 2005 they were able to further nail down the source of the pulses really? they were coming from the gulf of guinea what the gulf of off, guinea so is that off the western coast of africa okay, okay. so that's where like the for I, I don't want to use the arm. Oh, we're going to test your geology has... knowledge here now. I was about to tell you, but go ahead. Well, I don't want to use the word armpit because it has negative connotations, but like that's the... a, yeah, but you're exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's, not right, the... it's right where South America would fit into Africa. I knew you were going to describe it that way, Rachel. You are correct. <laughs> yeah. It's the spot where I, I, the top wide half of Africa meets the lower skinny part. And it makes mm-hmm. sort of a little, you know, uh, an armpit. To use Victoria's uh, not-so-delicate way of saying it. So, um, once again, though, the trail stopped. Uh, they kind of had it narrowed down to that part of the ocean or part of the world. Huh. Uh, but, you know, uh, the cause was debated and, and unknown because there wasn't really much more to go on. Mm-hmm. Now, scientists are a curious lot, so people Just continue to look in... Yeah, continue to look into the cause of... Um, you know, as technology got better, people were looking into this more and more. And one of those researchers was Garrett Euler, who's working uh, at the Washington University in St. Louis. And he narrowed down the source even better. The specific part of the Gulf of Guinea where the sounds come from was the bite of Bonnie. Now, you may not be familiar with this word bite. That's B-I-G-H-T. No. Nope. B-I-T-E. That's a new one. Uh, People who I do rock climbing might, before, might know I... bite. 
you take a bite of rope. It's like a bend of rope. Yeah. Um, oh. Weirdly, the word bite and bite, those two words, um, even though they sound the same, they're, they're not etymologically related in any way. Hmm. But curiously, you can think of a bite, B-I-G-H-T, as a bite, B-I-T-E, out of a coastline. So a bite is a curved indentation in the coast, like someone has taken a bite out of it. <laughs> but weirdly, right. those words are not, they're not related. It's a total coincidence, which I think is kind of fun. Huh. So um, it, it, it narrowed it down to this, this sort of like right at the, we're going to keep going with it, the middle of that armpit there <laughs> is, a, is a little indentation called the bite of Bonnie. Um, we could call and it a this corner. Is, Sure, it's just, it's very visual. Um, at that corner, there's an indentation called the Bite of Bonnie. And uh, that is where they narrowed it down to. But here's where things get even more strange, I think. Now, I've been saying that there's like either a 22 or sorry, 26 or like a 28 second pulse. Mm-hmm. There's actually both. There's a 26 second pulse oh. or a pulse that's every 26 seconds. And there's a pulse every 28 seconds. That are not necessarily like synchronized. Obviously, they can't be because they would fall out of synchronization very quickly. Right. Um, and what they found is that the 26 second pulse seems to come from the island of Sao Tome, which is in the Bight of Bani. And the 28 second pulse is coming from 300 kilometers away at Mount Cameroon. And Mount Cameroon is like not out in the water, it's, in, it's actually inland. In, yeah. Inland. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I know you're dying to know what, what's causing yeah, what, the pulses, right? I am right? so eager to know. I'm, I, this is really very mysterious. Uh, I just, too bad. We don't, we don't, we don't know. No, ah! Kirk. No, no, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you tell us That's about so these pulses. Look, there, there are, there are two theories. Oh good, um, there are theories and, that we don't know. Or two hypotheses. Let's Thank use our you. scientific right. language here. Hypothesis. Two hypotheses. Um, theories and I take it more seriously. They don't. They scientists don't agree, and there, there's this is an ongoing debate right now, which is kind of fun. So, um, if we go back to 1980, remember Gary Holcomb discovered that there was a correlation between storms in the Atlantic yeah. and how strong the pulses were. Right. Well, that research has held up. Strong storms in the Southern Atlantic Ocean, say like off the coast of South America, do seem to make the pulses stronger. And the hypothesis is that these storms create long period waves mm-hmm. that head toward Africa. And the waves are essentially funneled by the Gulf of Guinea. And then they reach the Bight of Bonnie, where they are focused even more. And when they reach the end of this shallow funnel, their energy is transferred into seismic energy into the land. And we're essentially recording the, the pulses of these waves hitting the shore. This is kind of what I was imagining, like when I was trying okay. to con- come up with a... Uh, explanation in my head. This is of like a, a more developed version of what was swimming around in yeah, my brain. Yeah, and and don't confuse these with like crashing waves. beautiful waves yeah. at the shore. Right. This is a totally different phenomenon going on. Uh, and I think that answer seems to make sense. Uh, and perhaps someday we'll know for sure. Um, but you know, actually, some uh, there's some thought that these are this is actually volcanic, mm. uh, and because. Huh. If you look at where, um, uh, you know, th- those pulses are coming from, uh, one of them is the island of Sao Tome, and there is a volcano on that island, and the other is Mount Cameroon, which is also a volcano. Mm. 
Hmm. And we do sometimes get pulses uh, from volcanoes. So okay. there is that makes you go, oh, well, that's got to be it. We know other volcanoes that give off pulses like this. So There's regular, two volcanoes. Uh, what's it? Regular. Regular pulses, oh. yeah. Okay. And we know that um, there are volcanoes at the two spots where these pulses are coming from. So, like, bingo. Yeah. It's solved. It's got to be. But then how do you explain why the storm they're, they're stronger when they're storms? Like, so, as you can see, there's some debate over this, uh, which I think makes it really fun. Um, I, I think both answers kind of make sense. It's not really a pressing issue in geology, though. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there are bigger <laughs> things that people want to figure out. So no one's Maybe. putting, like, really serious research into this. In fact, the guy uh, who like, most recently was uh, working on this, he basically was working on something else when he kind of realized it could apply it. to this and figured it out. Yeah, so... That seems to be how it always is. People are stumbling into it and get kind of curious about it and work on it a little bit and go, ah, okay, and set it aside. Um, so I think now, though, like, I feel like there's sort of a few different scientists going back and forth on it. So we may, in the next, you know, decade or so, when the next generation of grad students is like, oh, that's interesting. I want to work on that. Maybe hmm. we'll get even more data on it and finally solve the mystery of these 26 and 28 second pulses that artists constantly heard around the world that's super cool and very frustrating thank you <laughs> i know you want the answer i, I wish i could give it answer, to you answer kirk it's probably one of those two things so just pick whichever is your favorite and um put your money down and uh let's episode you know uh i don't know 500 or whatever <laughs> we'll come back and give an update on the new what the, what the new research tells us right by then, there would be, like, at least two grad students. Maybe at right. least one. Maybe, maybe some children listening today can grow up and become grad students and uh, solve this for us. <laughs> Wouldn't that be splendid? That'd be so cool. Well, look, we're going to take a break. You can ponder this while we're taking our break, and maybe you can come up with the answer. And when we come back, Rachel, uh, do you have a mystery for us as well? <laughs> I'll take that as a no. We'll see you guys in a little bit. All right, everyone, welcome back. Now, I don't really have a mystery, but I, I do have a little bit of a story. We're going to go all the way back to World War, at the end of World War I. Um, okay. all Australia right. is having a little bit of an issue. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, it's so rare for you to go to Australia. Truly. Okay, <laughs> warm there. So they had a bit of an issue because all of the men that had gone to fight in World War I that they had sent, uh, and those who lived, they came back to Australia, but all of their jobs had been filled. Uh, they decided to do a placement or a settlement uh, program where they would okay. give the veterans a place to live, a plot of land that they would farm uh, wheat and that they would herd sheep on, okay? What could go uh, wrong? Okay. Right. Where it seems like this is this has worked so well on the in, in history. So yeah. so well. Where would you do that in Australia? The middle of the um, desert. Not the yeah, middle of the desert. It seems uh -huh. like the best place to uh -huh. plant wheat. Yeah. Right. All the that way. That seems over like a human thing to do. In Perth, right? In Western Australia. Absolutely. Western Australia. Yeah. yeah. Best place for it. Very deserty place. So you can imagine that the land was pretty poor for farming. 
and uh-huh. the yeah. veterans were not very happy about that. But uh-uh. this was their, uh, this is what they had, this is what they had to do, and we kept them busy and gave them a livelihood. So the farmers, uh, in ni- by 1932, uh, the farmers have decided that they're going to prepare to harvest their crop. Unfortunately, no one was prepared for the emus. <laughs> okay. Uh, I sure wasn't. Rampaging emus ate the entire wheat crop. As part of a normal migration after breeding season, about 20,000 emus passed through the area where these farmers <laughs> were growing wheat. I'm sorry, was this their first year growing wheat? Uh, they, they'd been there for a while, weren't they? they? They'd been there for a little bit, but not like a super long period of time. And okay. emus don't necessarily stay on one migration pattern. They kind of roam around. Okay. So this is one of their first times going through They have this yet particular... to come through this part of town. Yes. So emus must migrate on foot. Yes, right? they do. They don't fly. They lightless birds. Wow, that's... you just put the most terrifying image in my head. <laughs> Uh, so, also, fun fact about emus, uh, which I think all three of us know, um, despite being the second largest bird at 6.2 feet, or 1.9 meters, they mostly eat plant material and insects. What's plants, what plants were in abundance in this area, you say? Wheat! 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 The wheat was there. The wheat was there. Um, so, the emus are like, oh, hey, this is a great place. And they start eating a bunch of the wheat. Now, they had already, like, farmers had already been dealing with um, the dingoes and they have been dealing with the rabbits and they had erected these short fences. But you get 20,000 emus just (laughs) barreling through. They run up to, they can run up to 31 miles an hour. Like, they're not slow birds. And they will... (laughs) Terrifying devastate your entire crop because they're trampling all over it and eating the seeds. So right. what is Australia to do but go to war with emus? Right. Have, okay. Have any of you heard of the emu war? <laughs> Not until no, now. But I'm, I'm, just, I'm just picturing that they like, let's import tigers or like some ridiculous... <laughs> How ridiculous did they go? That, did they go for some sort of preposterous biological control, Rachel? They, they do, but <laughs> of course, not not the rabbit experience hadn't been enough for them or anything. <laughs> so, because of because of all of the spoiled crops and the emus uh, consuming everything the rabbits were able to get in and cause further issues. So the right. farmers relayed these concerns to um, the minister, or to like, to the government themselves, and right. uh, were sent to meet with the Minister of Defense, Sir George Pierce. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So they have decided okay. that um, the military should be deployed, and they're going to war against the emus. They had already, because they were soldiers, they were uh, aware of the effectiveness of machine guns, so they asked oh for my. machine guns to fight 
emus. Wow. Wow. So the military involvement began uh, in (laughs) October 1932. It was under the command of uh, Major G.P.W. Meredith. Uh, Meredith was commanding uh, two other soldiers, Sergeant McMurray and Gunner O'Halloran. And they were armed with two Lewis guns and about 10,000 rounds of ammunition. Okay? Uh, well, that's, that's only going to that's only gonna get you half of the emus if you're on a perfect shot. <laughs> right. Um, they couldn't do anything in October. They had to wait until November because of rain. Um, so they were then deployed with er- orders to assist the farmers and to collect... 100 emu skins so their feathers could be used to make hats for light horsemen. Okay? So So now I'm doing the math that way. That's a lot of shots per emu if you're only taking 100. Right. So the By the way, I just looked up up, uh, Lewis gun. Ah. Uh, That's a serious uh, bird hunting machine right there. Yes, it is. (laughs) Check it out. But here's the thing. There may have been 20,000 emus in the area, but they're not all together. They're right. a wide-ranging uh, space. So they, when they first got there in early November, there were about 50 that were sighted. Um, they were out of range of the guns, so they tried to herd the birds into an ambush, but the birds split into small groups and ran, so they were difficult to target. Almost um, like they've uh, been evading predators for millions of years. Right. Uh, so the first... Uh, attempt was ineffective due to the range and the second round of gunfire was able to kill a number of birds and it was maximum of maybe a dozen that were killed uh the next significant event was uh they tried to do another ambush where they saw more than a thousand emus and they waited until they were in close proximity and the gun jammed only after about 12 birds were killed. And the ma- remainder were scattered. So, and no other emus were uh, spotted that day. So they chose to move further south, uh, where they seemed to be fairly tame. But it was, it, it, it just, every single small pack of emus, apparently, according to the, I have a quote. Uh, according to one of the army observers, noted that each pack seems to have its own leader now, uh, a big black plumed bird which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and and warns them of our approach. Um, At one stage of this war, (laughs) Meredith, uh, the leader of this strike, right, decided, hey, Let's mount one of the guns on a truck and move, right? Okay. That, that would work. But you know what there is a lack of in Western Australia? Roads. Roads, Roads yeah. So they went. As long as the birds are running on the road, right, we're set. The, gunman was un, the gunner was unable to fire any shots because the roads were so bumpy. He had, or not even the roads, just the ground was so bumpy. He had just had to put all of his weight and energy into holding on so he didn't fall off. 
Um, this doesn't sound like an overly successful campaign hmm. against the birds. Spoiler alert. Uh, the emus win. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Kind of figured. Saw that coming. Yeah. Um, the, the account of how many emus had actually died is pretty, like, uh, up and down. Like, it varies anywhere from 50 birds to, like, 500. But it, it honestly depends. Um, by, this was all in the first attempt. The second attempt, the, uh, the, because the uh, military withdrew, and eventually uh, <laughs> they had decided, oh, well, this is good enough, and then left. And the fi- farmers were like, <laughs> hey, there's Our work here is done. <laughs> happening here. I need assistance. We need more military assistance. So Major Meredith com- said that the emus were actually, like, super maneuverable, even when they were badly uh, wounded, to the point where he said... If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invul- invulnerability of tanks. Um, because wow. unless unless you, like, got it in, like, the head, that emu is still going to go. Um, because they're... And they're really hard to hit. They're fast-moving. They're really quick on their feet. They're, they have a really... A lot of agility. So I you put a rocket pack on their back with pigeons inside it. And <laughs> exactly. It's all Good to go. Um, but uh, so overall, what ended up happening was. They were vastly unsuccessful. Um, they by the end of all of it, the there was about two thousand five hundred wounded birds that had died result of the injuries they had sustained. And that was the maximum amount that they had been able to, like, get for this whole campaign against 20,000 emus. So there was... The emu very much won this war. And for people who are worried about emus, their population level is just fine in Australia. They are a species of no concern. They're not threatened in any way um, other than, you know, way back in 1932... And that's just what I wanted to talk to you both about today. I wanted to talk about that absolutely crazy war against emus and the fact that humans lost a war. It's a rare thing that humans lost a war to something else. <laughs> well, like I mean, that. I mean, usually so, when there's a war, uh, once half the humans always lose. You're right, but usually, but not usually, not usually humans. to non-humans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's what I have for you both today. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah. All right. See y'all next time. See y'all next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.